Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. This series that we've been going through, um, Pastor Lynn uh, has, has uh, spent several weeks setting up for us uh, what, what it's about and what the idea of outflow really is. And last week, we were looking at the top tier of the fountain, and we, it, Pastor Lynn has, has told us that the idea, the concept of outflow here is that God pours into us uh, from himself. He pours in uh, his spirit, his, his living water, as the word says. He pours it into us, uh, and, and then we should be receptive and open to that so that he can pour into us until we are overflowing into uh, different spheres of our life. And so we had, first of all, the top tier is Jerusalem. That's what Pastor Lynn discussed with us last week. And Jerusalem is about the fact that as God pours into us, that the result is an overflowing life that, that, um, deepens our relationship with Christ. It's an investment in our relationship with Him. So, uh, what He pours into us overflows and comes back to Him as a part of our relationship with Him. And then the second tier is, uh, the idea of Judea, which we're going to discuss today. And that's the idea that as, as that water overflows in our own lives and into the, to our relationship with Christ, it also overflows out of us into our relationships with those that are closest to us, our family and our friends. And then the next year we'd talk about Samaria, which would be our community, and then the uttermost parts of the earth, uh, which is obviously the rest of the world. And so um, that's, that's the progression we're taking through this series. And today we're going to look at the second tier, outward toward family and friends. And as we get ready to talk about that, I just um, want to bring up a point to you that um, I think is, is um, probably common for all of us. But it seems to me like family and friends are the hardest people really to minister to. They're the hardest, they're the hardest ones to really talk about the gospel with if, if they're folks that, that don't believe, if they're, if they are, um, if they're not active seekers of Christ. Uh, it's kind of hard to talk about spiritual things with them at times. And there's a lot of different reasons why that might be. Uh, I think that our friends and our, our our family they tend to see us with all all the glitz and glamour sometimes they see us uh, um, at our worst and at our best they know our faults they have more opportunity to observe in us the things that aren't necessarily christ like and and I think that that is intimidating for us as Christians sometimes I think we have we struggle with the idea that, that we know we're not all that we should be. And then when we try to share with them, that comes back and bites us, uh, in response at times. I think another thing that happens is, is that we're, we're fearful that because of those, those flaws that they're gonna reject the message. Maybe you've tried to talk to some of these people that you care about in the past already and they've rejected the message of Christ. Uh, maybe it's damaged your relationship with them and, and, um, it's made it hard for you guys to talk about things. I've had those experiences, and 
Probably every one of you have someone in your life that you could think of that you know is, is not necessarily very receptive to the gospel. If you don't have someone in your life that you're close to that would be closed off to that, then I would, uh, I would ask you to, to examine that and, and ask God to see if there's, some, uh, if there's someone that he's wanting you to invest in or if there's some way that he's wanting you to reach out and get to know someone because we can't really share the gospel unless we know people that need the gospel. And so, um, but for those of you who do, uh, you may, most of us probably have a family member or something. It, it, it can be a very sticky situation. Sometimes, um, sometimes because we love them sincerely and intensely, we, we have a, um, we're, we're kind of desperate to convince them of their need for Christ. We feel like it's our job to persuade them uh, and, and help them understand how much they, they need or should want Christ in their life. Um, we, we tend to sometimes bulldoze over all of their arguments with any, uh, any apologetic argument that we can think of that will uh, go against or prove wrong their, their incorrect theology or view of spiritual things. And so... Uh, we're, we're, we're quick to, to come back in, in, in defense of our own position um, without ever really listening to what's at the heart uh, of their position. And sometimes we feel like we have to sell them on Jesus. Like somehow we're responsible for whether or not they receive Christ. And, and that puts a lot of pressure on us. And that, that is, again, another reason why I think we tend to shy away sometimes from those hard conversations and those hard people to minister to. Um, so even though we're good-willed and uh, good intended, we have good intentions, uh, it, it's a lot of times very hard to talk to people um, that, that you're closest to about those things. Um, I don't know if you've ever found that to be true in your own life, um, but I know I have in mine. And as I read through the readings for, for this coming week, um, it just kind of resounded with me and some of my experiences um, but I have to say that God is bigger than those problems. He's bigger than those situations. And I think part of the issue, and we'll talk about this some more as we go through the message today, but part of the issue is that we, we have decided that somehow it's up to us. And, and it is in the sense that we have an obligation to Christ to, to, to be obedient and to follow through with what He's commanded us to do. But it's not in the sense that we can't make someone believe and we can't make someone receive Christ. We can't make someone uh, uh, have have um, uh, remorse for their sin and, and confess their sin and and uh, trust Christ as their Savior uh, or even for their daily walk. We we can't do that for them. But what we can do is share the message, and and it's God who's responsible for the results. And and I think we forget that. And, and we take that responsibility on ourselves. Today we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 13 called the parable of the sower. And you're probably familiar with it. You've probably heard it many times. Um, the parable of the sower uh, goes like this. Jesus was, uh, Jesus was teaching. This is in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. And, he said, and it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. 
And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. Uh, But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So the disciples came to him later in private and said, Okay, Jesus, what, what does this mean? What is this all about? And so this was his explanation, uh, starting in verse 18. He said, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now this is a very important passage for us, and in order to understand it, we need to first differentiate between the concept of sowing and planting. Because I I think as I read this verse for a long time, I used to think of uh, sowing and planting as the same. And anybody who knows anything about uh, crops or gardening or dealing with horticulture in any sense, they, they probably already understand the difference. But just in case you don't, uh, let's look at the dictionary definition of the word plant. It means to put or set in the ground for growth, to introduce, to deposit, to insert, or set firmly in or on the ground in some other body or some other body or surface, to station, to situate, to establish or set up. You get the concept. Um, now, if I were going to have a seed right here, and if I were going to uh, plant this seed, what would I do first? I'd dig a hole, okay? And, and then what would I do? I would place the seed down in the hole. And then what would I do? I'd cover it back up. And then what would I do? Put some water on it. And then what would I do? Wait, <laughs> right? I'll probably fertilize it, and I'd probably watch it, take care of it. If you've ever done, had a plant in your house, you understand this concept. You you put it in the pot, and then when it gets a certain size, you got to put it in a different pot, and you spend a lot of time and energy focusing on this one thing, this this one seed that you try to nurture so that it will grow. But then we have this other this other word, this word sow, and the word sow means to scatter over land for the purpose of growth to disseminate, to strew, or sprinkle. So, if I were going to demonstrate to you the idea of sowing, I might use something like this. Watch your eyes. This is sowing. Now, Gilmer and Gina, I'm glad they weren't here in first service today. They will not like me for doing this. I was sweeping up seeds uh, between services. My family was helping and others. I, was, I appreciate their help. But anyway, for those of you who didn't get a taste of it, here it is. All the way around the room, right? This is sowing. Now, how many seeds did I invest? A lot. How many seeds did I invest when I was planting? One. Okay. Now, tell me something. 
Which way do I have more responsibility for the growth, in the planting or the sowing? The planting. Now, um, when I sow, or when I plant, rather, how many seeds are going to sprout? One. When I sow, how many seeds are going to sprout? A lot. Are they all going to sprout? No. Are they all going to develop? No. Somebody in first service had to be smart and say, none of them in this room, you know, because they're not going to grow on the carpet. But, but the idea is that as I scatter seed, the more seed I scatter, the more seed will sprout and grow. And who is responsible for the growth? Am I responsible for those things sprouting? No. What was I responsible for? The scattering, right? I wasn't, I wasn't responsible for their growth. So when they sprout up, it's not because I did anything. I just put the seed out there, right? It's, and it's, it's the process of nature that God has created in this world, how, how things work, how things grow and develop, and that, that causes those seeds to take root and to grow. It's not anything I've done. All I did was place the seed there. So we have to understand the distinction between those two words. And, um, we need to think about this. Why would God tell us that evangelism is like sowing instead of planting? Why would he say that? Right, so evangelism is the idea that we're, we're telling lots of folks, right? It, it, if, we, if we were planting seed, we'd be investing in one person and that would be it, right? And we might could plant here and we might could plant here and we might could plant here. But the idea is that we're supposed to be scattering seed everywhere we go. Now we might plant in some areas as well at the same time. But the idea is that we're scattering seed because... Now why would we, why would we need to scatter seed? So people will hear it. You know, the simple, the simple reason is because people need to hear the message more than once before they're ready to receive it. You know, there's a statistic that actually says the, it, the average number of times a person has to hear the gospel before they ever receive Christ is seven times. Seven times. And when I, and when I heard that statistic, this is, was immediately what I thought of. I thought of all the times in my life I've heard, and you've heard this somewhere from somebody too. You may have even been one of those people to say it. All the times in my life I've heard somebody say, I have grown up in church my entire life, but I never heard the gospel. Ever, ever heard that statement? Okay. Now, when we say that statement, or when people say that statement, oftentimes the implication and I think, I really do think this is the intent a lot of times. And, and um, I think the implication is that people are trying to say, my, my pastor, my, my Sunday school teacher, my church leaders, my youth leader, they never really told me how to get saved. They never told me the whole thing. And I've heard those comments. And you may, you may have heard those comments too. And, and I began to realize that's probably not the case. I mean, it could be the case for some folks, but for most of those people, they've spoken it correctly, they just don't understand it correctly. They they really do mean they've been to church all their life and they never heard the gospel. But it wasn't that the gospel wasn't preached. You see what I'm saying? The seed was scattered, and at times it fell on different types of soil. And so it takes a while for the soil to be cultivated. And honestly, it takes sometimes... A lot of seed in an area. Have you ever tried to, to, to sow grass seed in your yard? You got a, a, a spot that won't grow, okay? And, and, and you scatter seed and you get a few sprouts and it dies off after a while when the heat comes out. What do you have to do? You have to re-sow. And before you sow, what do you do? 
You work the ground up. You, you run an aerator over it and things like that. And you try to, try to create a, a better environment for the seed to take root. And that's what we're talking about today. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. See, God called us to scatter seeds, not just to plant. He called us to scatter seeds. And the more seeds we cast out, the more will grow up. It's just that simple. Um, as we look on, we see, here, here's the explanation of the parable, first of all. Um, in the parable, we see that the seed is the Word of God. Literally, in the, in the English Standard Version, the ESV that we're, the, our passages are quoted from today, um, it says the Word of the Kingdom. But this is the idea of the Word of God, the Gospel message. Okay? The seed is the Word of God, or the Gospel, the soil is though, uh, refers to those who hear the Word. The soil is those who hear the Word, and the sower is the one who shares the Word. So we have the seed, the Word of God, the soil, the one who hears the Word, and the sower, the one who shares the Word. And I want to I put this idea in your head, and I want just just kind of ruminate on this and, and hold, it, hold on to it for later uh, in the message, but... Uh, this statement I'm going to read to you to make sure I say it exactly the way I wrote it down. Little acts regularly done in love with no expectation of reward or benefit in return coupled with the gospel. That is sowing. I'm going to say it again. Sowing means little acts regularly done in love with no expectation of reward or benefit in return, coupled with the gospel. See, the gospel is key. Absolutely necessary, because we can do random acts of kindness all day long. Um, St. Augustine or St. Francis of Assisi or one of those saint guys, they said one time, um, I don't remember who it was, uh, they said one time, uh, Preach the gospel by any means possible, and when necessary, use words. And I agree with the sentiment that they're trying to express, that we preach the gospel in all of our actions throughout our life, that the way we live is a demonstration of the gospel. But I disagree with the specifics of the statement simply because you can't hear the gospel unless someone says it. Until you've heard the good news, you don't know what it is. So you may see a demonstration of the gospel through the loving acts of kindness that are demonstrated to you. But that is not the gospel. Do you understand the distinction? It's not the gospel. So we, we have to have the action coupled with the gospel to, to be sowing. So we see in the scripture there's four responses to the gospel. The first response is mentioned is no response. The soil had been hardened over time. This was where Jesus said the seed fell along the path. So on the path, that's where people are walking and the dirt gets packed down really hard and, and it's dusty and there's not anything else growing there. And, and, uh, and, and so the seed falls to the ground and it can't take root. The ground's too hard and the sun's shining down on it and it cooks it and all that sort of stuff. And then, and then the birds come and they snatch it up. No response 
because the ground has been too hard. Number two is an emotional response. This is the rocky soil where we see that Jesus said it was received joyfully, but because it lacked depth and substance, it couldn't hold on to the truth when placed under pressure. And so here's somebody who received the Word of God joyfully, but they couldn't, they couldn't withstand under pressure. They didn't have depth and substance. And then the third response is the worldly response. The worldly response is where uh, we have the discussion of the weeds and the thorns and the thistles. And it says uh, that this is the person who accepts the gospel, but is easily distracted by the concerns of life. Now, a lot of times we call these people carnal Christians. They, they never really bear fruit. They may know all the right answers or even go to church regularly, but their lives display no change, no evidence of being impacted significantly by the gospel, no life change, no daily influence from their faith. You know, it's not an uncommon problem. And, and I would say that statistically speaking, there's probably a good number of us uh, in this church service could possibly fall into this category. We do church and we do daily life and the two never really meet otherwise. That our daily activity, our daily practice is not rooted in, in, in following or living out um, an active expression of our faith in Christ and allowing Him to work in us and through us. And often, often we just go through our routines. I'm guilty of that at times. I'd say we're all guilty of that at times. But, but there, there uh, is a certain subset of church attendance, that that's just kind of the general way we do things. And and those... <laughs> you have a question or comment? Yeah. Yep. Right. So you kind, of, you kind of go through the motions and you have your form of spirituality, but in terms of your heart towards God, uh, your heart and, and God's heart are not connected on a regular basis. You're not actively walking in it. Exactly. And so, so with that being said, we, we need to keep in mind, um, we've all been at all of these places at some point in our life, right? Okay, the fourth response is the fruitful response. This is where Jesus said the seed fell on good soil and it took root and there's growth. And the evidence of the growth is good fruit. Notice he said, the evidence of the growth was the fruit that it, that it bore. And what is inside the fruit? More seed. What is the natural cycle when, when the Word of God takes root in our lives and, and we begin to grow and develop in Christ and bear fruit for Him the natural response is that we should be doing what? Sharing it. It should naturally grow out of, come out of us as a result of growth. Seed is a natural response to growth. When you produce fruit, you produce seed. So these are the four responses we see in Scripture. And, and the assumption that Jesus had is that we're going to go around flinging seed everywhere we go. Now what's the seed? The Word of God, the Gospel. The, the assumption Jesus had is that we are going to go and fling seed everywhere we go, even where it's going to be snatched up by the birds, even where it's not going to take root, even where it's going to sprout up quickly and then wither away. We're still going to scatter it. Is, is it. is it a vain act for us to do it? Is it worthless for us to do that? No. Is God's supply of seed limited? No. 
No, God's supply of seed is not limited. And it's not vain, uh, it's not being done in vain when we do it because who's responsible for the growth? God, not us. Not us. See, if we take responsibility for it, then, then, then we feel like a failure when it's not received or when it's received for a short time and then somebody, it, do you get what I'm saying? Have you ever, I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but I've had the opportunity, uh, before I was in ministry, uh, to, to, to share with people, friends who, who supposedly gave their life to Christ and they were on fire, so to say, you know, for the Lord and, and they had a lot of, had a lot of energy and they were sincere about things and then trouble hit and the next thing you know, it's like, bam, they just walk away from it. And I remember, I can remember having friends like that and just thinking, gosh, maybe I did something wrong. And I'd have people, well-intentioned people who would say to me, oh, well, that person never really was saved. You know, or, or, or they didn't, they didn't really, and I'm not saying they were or weren't. I'm just saying Jesus told us it was going to happen. Right? Our job is not to take responsibility for what sprouts. It's just to keep being faithful and doing what He said. Okay? And my, so that's my point in this. It's not to say whether or not they were saved and lost it or any of that kind of stuff. I don't believe you lose salvation. I'm just saying that it's not our responsibility when they fall away. It's, you, you get, you get the difference. All right. So, um, when we're sowing seed, uh, a lot of times, you know, you can't, you can't really tell from the outside what the soil is like on the inside of a person's heart. So you never know how they're going to respond to that. So we need to learn for us today, and this is what our, our topic is for today in our outflow message, is the idea that before we sow, we need to first prepare the soil. See, we, it's, our job, it's our job not only to sow the seed, but to help prepare people's hearts. So as we're going along, if we're sowing seed and helping to prepare the soil, then, um, then that benefits the gospel when other people come along and sow seed, right? Because how, what's the average number of times somebody has to hear the gospel message before they receive Christ? Seven times. Okay, good. You guys are listening. You're doing a great job. All right, so let's look at the problems with the soil. All right, if, you, if you're working in your garden and you have this problem, hard soil, what do you do? Break it up. You get out the tiller, right? If you're trying to sow your grass and you got a hard spot in the yard and you can't grow anything there, you use the aerator. You plug it, right? You, you break up the soil. If you have rocky soil in your garden, what do you do? You take the rocks out. You try to remove the stuff that's going to hinder the growth. If you have crowded soil, like you ever watched uh, or ever noticed in the woods how the trees grow? All you hunters know know this. A lot of probably most of you know this, but but notice how the sapling, how long it takes a sapling in the woods to grow versus a sapling that's out in the middle of your yard with nothing else around it. The shade of the large trees that are already there and established blocks the sun from the smaller trees, and the younger trees can't grow. Their growth is stunted because they don't have the same opportunity that the larger trees have. And that's what happens in soil that's crowded. That's the same idea here. And so if you have a crowded spot in your garden to, to help things to grow better, you clear away the excess that prevents the growth from happening. And so those are the four, the three types of uh, problems that Jesus addressed here. And so what we're going to look at is how can we help uh, be a solution to those three types of problems spiritually in, our, in people's hearts. You know, we said before that family and close friends are some of the most difficult people to reach. And sometimes they have hardened hearts. Sometimes they've, 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 they've 
sprouted quickly and, and, and withered. And they go, you know, I tried that before and it didn't really work for me. Um, sometimes they, they just have too many pressures of life crowding out their, uh, the spiritual and, and making it hard for them to focus on, on what God would have them to do or what God would want to do in their lives. And so how can we invest in them? Because we're God's messengers of the gospel. So the question today is what can we do to help prepare the soil? We're going to talk about four things we can do. The first one is that we need to learn to listen. Now, Pastor Lynn talked about this passage a few weeks ago. It's uh, James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, Pastor Lynn mentioned the saying that you've got two ears and one mouth. You should listen twice as much as you speak. And that's the concept in James chapter 1. We need to learn to listen. Here's, here's what I know about people. I know this about you, and I know this about others, because I know this about me. I know this about my family. I know this about my friends. And it's the same for every human being. We tend to be overwhelmingly impatient people. We want immediate answers, immediate solutions. We don't really have uh, a desire to be patient and wait or try to understand other people's perspectives oftentimes. And so when we get into a situation where we're dealing with someone on the issue of the gospel, um, we spend more time focusing on what we are going to say than we do on listening to them and finding out where they are. And that's where our first mistake is. You know that 80% of your communication is nonverbal. 80% of communication is nonverbal. So we need to pay attention to what is said and what is unsaid. We need to pay attention to body language. So I can say something to you, and I can use the same words and the same volume and the same tone, but my body language might say something very, very different. At that moment, my body language might tell you a lot of things. My expression will make a difference. And what we don't understand is that when we're dealing with someone, we should constantly be picking up on their clues and mindful of what kind of perception we're giving off to them because 80% of communication is nonverbal. That's why, have you ever had a situation where you got upset with somebody over email? Or you made somebody upset over email, and you're like, what did I do? Anybody ever had that experience at some point in life? Yeah, and, and it's because there's no tone, there's no nonverbal communication associated with the words. So when people read the words, they interpret the words the way they feel at the moment or the way it hits them at the moment, instead of being able to interpret all of the nonverbal cues that go along with it. And so we have to understand that when we're dealing with people. We need to be willing to put aside any personal reactions that we have so that we can focus on what they're saying. And we need to understand that listening is a spiritual exercise. And God tells us that we should be still and know that He's God. We see in the, in the Old Testament that it says that God speaks in a still, small voice. Spirit, listening is a spiritual exercise. And, and God encourages us to get quiet before Him and to listen for Him. 
and, and, and to listen to what he's saying to us. And, and you may not hear him in an audible voice, but he is going to speak to you. And it's going to be in a subtle way oftentimes. And, and he speaks directly to your heart oftentimes as well. But the point is, we have to learn to listen if we're going to hear it. And the same thing is w- with dealing with people. Oftentimes as you're talking with people or listening to people, if you'll learn to pick up on the nonverbal cues, you'll begin to hear things that they're not saying. And, and you'll begin to understand things in a different light. And so that it's very important for us. I, I really struggle with this. I'll just be quite honest with you. I really struggle with this. I've, I'm better at this than I was 10 years ago. I'm better at this than I was 5 years ago. But I struggle with this. Because I'm usually thinking about what I'm going to say next. You know? And, and there's a lot of you. Anybody else in here like that? Okay? Yeah, I see a few hands. A few of you are going to be honest. And the rest of you are liars. That's okay. But we're, it's, it's the truth. We're usually focused on what we're going to say next. Um, we need to lay down our own needs and interests for a little while. Because when we do that, we're saying, I really care about you. And right now what you've got to say is the most important thing that's going on in my, in my world. If we could, I mean, tell me, how would you respond if somebody communicated that to you? What you are saying to me right now is the most important thing that's going on in the world. Wives, how many of you like that from your husbands? <laughs> my wife is like, you're not listening to me. I'm like, yes, I am. You know? um, and uh, she's like, no, you have to look at me when you say it, when I'm saying it. You know, that's when I know you're listening. <laughs> and guys are like, oh, yeah, really? We can look at you and zone out. We, we see you talking. We have no clue what you just said. Don't ask us a question because then you'll really be mad. But we can do other things and be listening too. So it's, but, but our communication styles are different. Amen, guys? Uh, see, they won't talk. <laughs> They're like, you dug that hole. You can get out of it yourself. All right. So... Um, once, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. I don't even know who said it. That's okay. Uh, I'll pray for you. Once people see that you care, they tend to open up and be more vulnerable with you and on deeper issues. I'll give you a for instance. When my, when my son was born, my wife had a condition called placenta previa and she was in a hospital for three months. We lived in the hospital and the hospital was an hour away from, from our home and we had an 18 month old at the time and I had two jobs. So we, I mean, we really had a lot to deal with there. And uh, I lived in the hospital with my wife. I, I went home and, and stayed with, with our daughter on the weekends. And my mother-in-law came and stayed with my wife. And through the week, the, my daughter stayed with, with uh, my in-laws. And um, it, was, it was a very tough time. But, I, but very quickly in that, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't take any credit for this. I believe it was just something that God was teaching me at the time. Um, but in the midst of that, very early on, I realized uh, that I was seeing the same people over and over again. I was seeing the same staff, same chaplains sitting in the foyer, the same people coming in and out for treatments, the same people sitting in the lobby in their wheelchairs, the same people coming in and out to visit family members and, and loved ones. And, and that I had a tremendous opportunity to minister to people. And I was so scared about sowing seed because I thought, what if they reject it? Because I felt like it was a personal rejection. And I thought, God, I just don't know if I can handle that right now. i got too much going on in life to sit down and invest that much time and energy in somebody and have them, you know, be antagonistic 
towards the gospel. I would take it personally. That's just where I was emotionally. And um, I, I began, I felt like God was nudging me just to pray for people. And so I would go up to people and I'd talk to them and find out their name. I'd speak to them every time I saw them. And I'd just say, hey, uh, why are you here? And they'd tell me, you know, my, my mom or my dad or my husband, my wife, my daughter, my kids, whatever. You know, this, this is the situation. This is why I'm here. And all, uh, most of the time, it's a very sad story. People crying. They're worried about somebody they love getting ready to maybe pass away or struggling with, with some issue. And I would just listen and ask questions. And I didn't tell them about my own situation unless they asked. And I tried to keep the conversation about why were they there. And then when they were done talking, and it was time for them to go or me to go, I would just say, hey, it's been nice talking to you. I appreciate you sharing with me. Before you go, would it be okay if I pray for you? That was it. Now, I could share the seeds of God's Word in my prayer. I didn't have to say, let me tell you what God did for you. Let me tell you how God wants to comfort you. I didn't have to do all that. I just said, hey, can I pray for you? And this is what I found out. It didn't matter if they were an atheist. It didn't matter if they were agnostic. It didn't matter if they were Buddhist. It didn't matter if they were some other denomination or some cult group. It didn't matter when people are hurting and in need and somebody cares and they say, I want to pray for you right now. They never turn it down. I didn't have a single person turn down prayer. Many of the ones I talked to, I would just simply say, do you have a church family that can help you during this time? I didn't say, do you go to church? I didn't say, where do you go to church? I didn't say anything that would communicate a judgment if they didn't. I just said, do you have a church family that can support you and, 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 and during this time and be there for you? And most of them said no. So I don't know what their particular belief was, but most of them said they didn't go to church. And oftentimes they say, well, I used to go to church and hadn't been to church in 20 years and, you know, I, I know I need to go back and I've been thinking about that a lot. And I didn't tell them what they ought to do. I didn't tell them how to do it. I just asked them out of concern, do you have support from a group like this? And can I pray for you? And, you know, they never turned it down. As a matter of fact, we had people that lived in the same county that I lived in that ended up coming to our church as a result. I didn't, I didn't tell them where I went to church. A lot of times I just just talked to them and said, I live in Wilkes. They're like, oh, I live in Wilkes too. It's like, oh, cool. And, and that was it. And the next thing I know, they'd be coming in the doors. Hey, you're that guy that prayed for my family. Guess what's going on with my mom now? Guess what? You know, give me give me an update. We had a situation one time where um, a lady that was so touched that she told a friend, who told another friend, who told another friend, who told her dentist, and her dentist went to my church. He's like, "What's the guy's name?" John Lewis. It's one of my pastors. I'm like, really? Where's that church? You know, and you no, know, it wasn't about the church, and it wasn't about me. Who was it about? It's about the love of Christ for them. For them. So we need to learn to listen. And one of the things that is hard for us to do is not correct their bad theology. I had a situation the other day. I was talking to a guy. Um, 
recovering addict. He was expressing to me his gratitude for a particular pastor who had invested in him and shared with him. And he, he, was, he was so sincere and genuine in his faith. But this is what he said. He said, Gary saved me. And I said, now listen, open foot, I mean open mouth, insert foot, right? I said, brother, Gary didn't save you, Jesus saved you. Gary just happened to be the one talking to you. I corrected his theology. I understood what he meant. His theology was faulty, he, or maybe he just didn't know how to express it. Maybe his theology was fine and he just didn't know how to say it. But I could have done a better job. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, the, the better thing to do would have been say, praise God that, that God that He used Gary's influence in your life to bring you to Christ. Right? Wouldn't that have been a better response? Yeah, that would have been a much better response. But... That's what we do. And so we need to be careful of that. We need to understand also there's a difference in acceptance and endorsement. Because oftentimes people, their theology is all kind of mixed up. That's okay. That's okay. God can straighten that out as they wrestle with Him and they seek Him. Um, accepting them is different than endorsing their view. Right? Accepting them as an individual is different than endorsing their view. Jesus accepted everyone that came to Him. He didn't try to correct their theology all at once. And so, we need to keep that in mind. We extend grace even when we disagree, knowing that listening and keeping quiet doesn't mean that you agree with their choices. We show respect, and it allows the other person to maintain control over the direction and the pace of the conversation. And then, later, they may decide they want your input. I have found that the less you tell people your opinion, the more they want to know it. I am not kidding. Has anybody else experienced that before? The less you tell them, the more they want to know it. Parents, you want to deal with your teenagers? Don't tell them what you think. Eventually, it'll drive them crazy because you stop telling them what to do. <laughs> just, just keep on putting, you know, just keep on uh, uh, encouraging them to do the right thing and pursue Christ. Um, now, there's times you need to tell them what to do, but you know what I'm saying. I'll give you an example. My sister years ago had to make a life, uh, major life decision, and she was she. Listen, my sister is the middle of three kids. I'm the oldest, and she uh, uh, never, never, ever wanted my advice on anything. She was always busy proving she could do it. <laughs> so, said, so I don't need your advice. Don't tell me what to do. I can take care of this myself. And so, any middle middle kids know that feeling. Yeah. All right. And so uh, I'll, I'll take care of this myself. And and she was making this major life decision. And she said she called me up and she needed prayer. And so I, I prayed with her and I talked to her. And, and she said, well, what do you think I should do? And I don't know how I knew to do this. It's just divine intervention. I'm not this smart. But I just said, you know what? It doesn't matter what I think. I'm not the Holy Spirit. What matters is what God wants you to do. And He's the only one that can tell you that. So... Don't worry about what I think. I'm going to encourage you and help you figure out what God's telling you. And do you know, the more I said that to her over the course of months, the more she asked me, what do you think I should do? She never asked my opinion, and she asked it constantly then, and I wouldn't tell her. And you'll find that that's true with people. Because we always think that our way of thinking about things is right. I mean, obviously we wouldn't do it if we didn't think it was the right thing. Right? So we always think that our, this is human nature, we always think that our way of thinking about it is right. And so when other people are coming up saying, no, you're wrong and trying to correct us, it's like, who are you? You know? 
back off. So give them a little space. Learn to listen and learn to, um, to wait for them to ask. Uh, the next thing we need to do is practice persevering love. This means action, not just words. Persevering love. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus talks about salt and light. And he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now what we see, you'll read more about this this week, but what we see is in John chapter 9, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And then in John chapter 14, Jesus tells us how he came to shed light on who God is. And um, so, or and and his character. So, what we need to understand here is that Jesus is the light. He pours himself into us to overflowing. What comes out of us is the light of Christ, and we are intended to reflect that to others. It's a scary thing, though, because a lot of times when we shine for Him, we draw attention to ourselves. Now, we don't necessarily draw attention to ourselves for the sake of drawing attention to ourselves, but it draws attention to the one reflecting the light sometimes. And we don't like that because, um, quite honestly, it, it illuminates our own weaknesses. And I don't know about you, but there's plenty of times that I feel like, well, I don't really have the right to say something to that person right now because... It's just going to come back on me, all my faults, and I'm going to make, and it's going to, it's going to make the gospel look bad. That's how I think about it, and uh, it, it can be scary. But you know, God intends that for us. Um, he He really does want to use that to cleanse us and purify us. You know, we have we have things in our lives that um, we need to confess. We have shortcomings we need to deal with. We need to repent. We need to move forward. Sometimes we need to apologize to people. Sometimes we need to ask for forgiveness. There's a lot of things we need to do. And, and when we're in those situations where we're shining the light of Christ and it draws attention to our own weaknesses, that's an opportunity for us to say, hey, guess what? By the way, Lynn, I realize I've done a horrible job at that. And I want to tell you I'm sorry. I need grace and forgiveness of Christ just as much as you do. And I hope that my failures and my faults don't make it difficult for you to understand how much Christ loves you. See, people don't like fake people. We don't, we don't like fake people. We, we don't like it when we feel like somebody's given us a line. That's why you hear people say, oh, I hate politicians, or I hate this, or I hate that. You know, they, they just say what, what, what they want, what people want to hear. And, you know, we, we hear all those kinds of comments about people. We, we just don't like being lied to because it breaks trust. And so the, the best thing for us to do is just to recognize that when, when, when it draws attention to our own faults and weaknesses, it's just time for us to, to say, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm broken too. I, I need this just as much as you do. And it's often that transparency and that vulnerability in our lives that actually draws people to us and to the gospel. You know, um, 
the people that are closest to us are the first ones to see those things. They usually see them without us having to tell them what they are. A lot of times they see them before we do. And maybe some, some of us have had experiences where we've tried to talk to people about Christ and they bring up to us all of our faults as a result. Maybe we don't even realize what they're talking about. We get defensive. It's kind of natural. But the correct way for us to handle that is to, is to deal with that and say, you know what, you may be right. And, and, and if you are, I, I apologize. I, I don't see it, but I don't want that to be the case. And that, and that goes a long way because then people understand you're not trying to be better than them. You're just being real. And it doesn't change their need for Christ. It just means you all need, we all need Christ, you know. So we have to keep that in mind. Being salt and light is, not, is, is about who you are. It's not just about what you do. Um, we, Jesus didn't say you need to act like salt and light. He said you are salt and light. You are, whether you choose to be or not. And what I know about salt is that salt it makes things taste good. Also, it can be used medicinally. And, and, and if salt gets rubbed in a wound, it, it stings. Sometimes we irritate people, and we don't mean to. It's the gospel that offends sometimes. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the truth just hurts. And we may not do it to be hurtful, but if you, I don't know if you've ever had this, but I, I've had this experience where I, I just I had friends in high school that because of what Christ was doing in my life, they, they loved me, but they couldn't stand being around me um, simply because they were convicted. And they told me so later. I had a friend that said, you, I'll never forget one night, my, one, my very best friend in the whole world, I was talking to him about some issues he was struggling with, and we had a group of people we hung out with. We, we always went over to that person's house on the weekends, and, and um, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't into drinking and drugs and all that sort of thing. I was... I was uh, I was trying to live for the Lord, and um, but but these guys did, and he I remember talking to him one night about his issues, and I didn't realize what was going on at that house. I was just I was just oblivious, and he said he said, "Do you realize how much the people here respect you?" And I said, "No, I kind of feel like they don't like me right now." He said, "No, they respect you," and I said, "Well, I don't get that." He said. Do you know what they were doing five minutes before you called? I said, no. He said, everybody was smoking pot. I was like, really? He said, yeah. When you called and said you were coming over, they immediately got rid of it, started airing out the room because they didn't want you to know what they were doing because they're convicted. I didn't have any clue. Their response to me was not that they respected me. It didn't come across as respect. But... But the salt and light brings conviction. And, and, when we, and when we're not willing to admit our own faults, going back to the discussion earlier, what happens is I think about that verse where Jesus said, you know, what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? It's good for nothing. Throw it out in the street and it's trampled on. And, and what I realized is think about some of the um, high-profile ministry leaders over the years that have lost their credibility. They fall into some great public sin, and 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 it's some some scandal has fallen on their ministry because of their lack of accountability or whatever it may be, their indiscretion. And what happens then when their name gets brought up years later? Can God redeem that person? Absolutely. Can God redeem their ministry? 
Absolutely. But what is the response of human beings typically after that's happened? Jim Baker. Right? They're like, I don't, I, don't, I don't listen to that person. Jim Baker, Jimmy Swagger, there's a bunch of names we could mention. And, you know, and it's not that, it doesn't mean that they're horrible people or that, that um, God can't use them. But it's much harder for people to be receptive. Right? And so Jesus said, you lose your saltiness. And so instead of trying to cover up, we really just need to be honest with people. And when, and when it draws attention to our weakness, admit it. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The verse we read earlier said we should be slow to become angry. And it's hard to do that with people who know how to push your buttons. The people closest to us typically know how to push our buttons. Amen? And when do they do it? Typically, it's at the worst time. Right? (laughs) It's like the moment that I'm stressed... Beyond belief, I've had it up to here with whatever's going on. You talk to my wife, you know, like, I've been home dealing with the kids all day, and this and that happened, and this happened, and the phone's ringing off the hook, and I, and all these things that have gone on. And, and right at the height of all that stuff, something happens. Something happens. And, and you know, that's, that's the moments when, when parents, you get, you know, mama, 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 mama. Mama, mama, daddy, mama, 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 he hit me, daddy. And it, it just does, it doesn't stop. It just keeps on going. You know, the cell phone's ringing, the house phone's ringing, the pot's boiling over on the stove, and, and, uh, somebody's trying to get you to, you know, I don't know, to, to, to get a, Six dozen cookies baked by noon, you know, or something like that for prison ministry. You know, whatever it is. There's some, there's a million things going on. And right at the height is when somebody pushes your buttons. It, it just always seems to work that way. And, and you know, the Bible says that uh, love bears all things and endures all things. That's hard. It is so hard. We, we don't realize this a lot of times, but this is, this is something you'll read about this week called the love test. It's, it's very typical, and it's, it's typically unconscious. We all do this. Every one of us, we do this. We don't realize it, we don't mean it, we don't intend it. But we tend to test people right before we're about to invite them into some deep vulnerable spot. And here's here's why it happens. Because what people want to know is, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 13, what people want to know is, is, is this right here. Patient, kind, not arrogant, not rude, doesn't insist on its own ways, not irritable or resentful, bears all things, endures all things. And they're wanting to know, are you a safe place? Can I trust you with my heart? Because if you don't pass this love test right here, those doors get closed. And you don't go there with that person. 
But, it, but, but in our subconscious, we tend to do that to people. We test them. And then when they've passed the test and we see that they're trustworthy, then we feel comfortable opening up to them. It's twisted. It's, I mean, it's really twisted that we do that to each other. But it's the truth. And passing the love test with those people that push your buttons is one of the hardest things to do. I could tell you a gazillion stories of how I failed that one. But it's one of the most important things that we can do. We need to remember that the key is to be slow to internalize the hurtful words and understand that it's bait from the enemy. It's bait. There's a trap set. And what he's trying to do is to get us caught in an offense. To get us offended with each other. Because when we're offended with each other, we close off. And when we close off, we lose our fellowship, we lose our accountability, we lose opportunity to invest in one another. And so we need to not take the bait. First Peter three thirteen through 18 says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're, when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. See, Christ endured all things, and He demonstrated that love. He is love. And what First Peter is saying is this. When we deal with those things, it's better to suffer for doing good. Here's what I know about me, and in return, it's what I know about you, because we're all the same. What I know about me is that I'm horrible at this. When I get offended, when somebody hurts me, it's easier for me to do what comes naturally. It's easier for me to tell people how I've been wronged than it is for me to suffer a wrong in silence and respond with grace. But it's more Christ-like for me to allow the love of God to fill me up to overflowing and respond in grace and suffer in silence. It's hard. It's hard. But the last time I was up here speaking, what did we say about the hard things? The hard things are always the good things. It doesn't feel good, but it's what produces fruit. Then the, the next thing we need to do is share with discernment. Share with discernment. We, we need to realize that it's not always our job to harvest when we evangelize, sometimes it's our job to water. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9 says, uh, this is the Apostle Paul talking, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. Who's responsible for the growth? God, right? Christ. 
And Paul said, I planted, so-and-so watered, so-and-so harvested. So what? doesn't have anything to do with any of us. God is the one responsible for the growth. Everyone has a different path to Christ. And by that, I don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. Don't, don't start picking apart my theology on that statement. I'm not saying all roads lead to God. I'm not saying that there's a different way to Christ. There's one way. There's one way. And that's through Christ. There's one way to God. And there's one way to heaven. There's one way to salvation. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is every person is unique. We have different experiences, different personalities, different, different uh, environments, different set of values. We have different things that have influenced us throughout our lives and continue to influence us day to day. We all have a unique passageway. And just like Jacob wrestled with the angel in the Old Testament and God blessed him and called him Israel, we all have to wrestle with God. We all have to have our own process of wrestling with Him and understanding who He is and coming to the point of surrender and blessing. But, so everybody's process is unique. And we need to be willing to let people go through their process. When we, um, If they perceive us as unwilling to dialogue or unsympathetic to their situation, then um, they're not receptive to the message. And when people perceive us as being that way, um, they, they typically turn off. They, um, uh, they don't typically come to faith in Christ. Nobody typically comes to faith in Christ from arguing or debating. I mean, is anybody, I mean, really, in an argument, have you ever been convinced of anything except your own opinion in an argument? It just doesn't work. It's like, okay, tell me I'm wrong long enough, I'll agree with you. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's not how people come to Christ. Um, what we need to understand is this, and I'm going to read it to you exactly the way I've written in here because I think it's so important. What others perceive and believe matters as much or more than what we perceive or believe when it comes to communicating clearly. I'm going to say it again. What others perceive and believe matters as much or more than what we perceive or believe when it comes to communicating clearly. Why is that? Because anytime you're in a communication situation, there's two things, there's two elements at work. There's intention and there's perception. When I'm communicating to you, Sherry, I'm communicating to you, I have a, an intention. And my intent may be pure, my motives may be great, but there's all kinds of other factors. The nonverbal communication, the experiences I had right before I started talking, the experiences that you had right before we started talking, all kinds of different dynamics. And when I communicate, what you hear is your perception. And you may totally miss my intention. Husbands and wives, ever done this? Ever had this situation with each other? And a wife says, this is the worst meal I've ever made. And the husband, trying to be nice, says, no, it's not. <laughs> oh, really? You're saying there's a lot of worse meals I've made than this? No, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. Oh, no, sure. Right? That, doesn't that happen? <laughs> I got one in front that's not going to say yes, but he's laughing hard. All right, th that happens all the time to us. We misunderstand each other's intentions. There's a difference in intention and perception. And there's all kinds of filters that get in the way of that communication and cause it to go south in a hurry. 
And so what other people perceive and believe matters as much or more than what we perceive or believe if we're wanting to communicate to them clearly. It's that important. Because it's not about winning an argument. When we're talking about the gospel, it is not about winning an argument. Who cares if my defense can trump your defense? Who cares? The point is not about winning the argument. The point is about winning somebody's heart. And if you don't win their heart, you lost. That's it. You lost. People are the heart of God. I mean, He loved each and every one of us so much that He gave His own Son. He suffered and died and took on the sins of the world for all time because of His great love for us. And if we, if we miss people, we've missed the heart of God. It's not about the argument. Who cares? We can win the fight and lose the war. So we need to be ex- willing to explore some of their views sometimes. Let them know that we're on the journey with them, not against them. We always need to be ready, though, and looking for the moment when they're open to hearing what Christ has done. You know, First Peter three fifteen passage we read earlier, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, I found when I was ministering to people in the hospital, by just listening and praying, they oftentimes asked me, they would tell me they weren't sure. I'm worried. I, I don't. I don't know. I've been in this situation with my dad or my daughter or my whoever. Really got me thinking. I don't know what else, what's going to happen to me if I die. I don't know what's going to happen to them if they die. What should I do? My goodness, what an invitation to hear the gospel. When they ask, we need to be ready. The last thing we need to do is we need to serve wholeheartedly. We need to understand service is never going to be convenient. The Latin word for service literally means slave. That doesn't sound very comfortable. Service means surrendering our freedom to do whatever we feel like doing in order to do what's best for someone else. Who's the best example throughout history of that very thing? Jesus. Could have called 10,000 angels. He could have removed himself from the cross. He could have opened his mouth and struck everyone dead. And he resisted and he gave himself up willingly as a sacrifice, a slave on our behalf. I don't know about you, but I've never done that. Hebrews says, Who of you have yet resisted temptation to the point of shedding your own blood? We have a high example to follow. We can't do it on our own, guys. He's got to be pouring into us. He's got to be overflowing in us. We are Christ's ambassadors for reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, evangelism is not about gaining converts. We live in a culture today in, our, in the, the state of the church. I'm just going to... I hate it. I wish it weren't so. I'm just as much part of the problem as anybody else at times in my life. But I'm just going to tell you something. The church, the state of the church today, we are in a place where we care more oftentimes about the success of our ministry, size of our congregation, the number of baptisms, the number of programs, the size of our programs, the size of our budget, the attendance on Sunday mornings, the number of kids, the, you know, whatever. 
how big and great our band is, how big and great our preacher is, how many books they're selling, how many CDs they're selling, how many whatever. We, our, our culture has become so caught up as, 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 as the church at times so caught up in, in the business and the marketing of ministry that we have missed the whole point. And it's not about converts. It's not about growing churches. Because <laughs> while we're talking about who's responsible for making the seed grow? God. Okay, what did Jesus say about the church to Peter? On this rock, this statement that I am the Christ, on this rock, I will build, I will build my church. Who's going to build the church? Jesus. Not us. Jesus is going to build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Who's responsible for growing the church? God. Is growing the church, does it have anything to do with how many people attend day three? Absolutely not. Does it have anything to do with the number of people that surrender their heart to Christ? Absolutely. It is not about us. It's not about what we like. It's not about what we want. It's not about growing our churches. It's not about growing anything. It is about the love of God for people. That's what it is. And if we miss that, we've missed it. We might as well close the doors and not come back. We might as well not sing another song up here at all. Who cares what we're singing? As Christians, we do more lying when we sing than any other time in our lives. We stand up here and say, Oh God, I love you. You're amazing. And I'll do anything from you for you. I'll go to the ends of the earth. And then we won't even get up and go across the street. We won't even close our mouths. And I'm guilty of it, guys. We won't even close our mouths and listen to people. And just let them talk. And share with us where they are. We're missing it. We're missing it. And it's time for us to wake up. God's offer is not a bait and switch. His supply of seed is endless. His supply of living water is endless. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Without price. There's no strings attached. No strings attached whatsoever. So as we close today, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and um, just take a moment to pray. And as the band comes out, I want you to reflect on maybe somebody in your life that needs the gospel. Somebody you know well. And maybe you haven't maybe you haven't done such a great job at these four things. I know I haven't. I fail a lot at this with certain people. It seems like they know how to get the worst of me. And I just want you to take a moment and reflect and ask God, God, what which of these things do I need to do? in the life of somebody I love? How do, how do you want me to make a difference and an impact in them so that the result is fertile soil? And maybe one day they'll hear it and receive it. And I'm going to invite you to come. I know we're, I know we're a few minutes over time, but I'm going to invite you to come this morning if, if you want, pray down front and just 
This bucket of seed is up here. And if you want to just grab some of these beans and maybe put them in a bag and carry them around in your pocket this week and just ask God to use them as a reminder of our job of preparing the soil for His Word to take root. Lord, would You teach us this morning how we can, how we can do a better job representing You? How we can prepare people's hearts for Your Word? Burden our hearts, Lord, this morning and convict us. We need You today. We need You to flow in us in abundance to the point of overflowing so that what comes out will cover up our faults surpass our own abilities that the ministry that happens will be the ministry of Christ through us and not our own work thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church we pray that it has ministered to you for more information about our location service times or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.